0: Welcome. If you don't know who I am, my name's Mike. Um, it's so good to see new faces in church. Uh, I'm looking out and there's a few people whose names I don't know. And that's a really good sign in a church, right? Um, I'm really excited for today. Uh, I think... In fact, I know God is really up to something at the moment through this series we've started in 1 John. Um, I don't think it's any accident that there's new faces, growing numbers. Um, I had a, as I was uh, doing a bit of quiet time this morning, I just had a picture of the Holy Spirit just sweeping through our aisles. And I think we got a sense of that this morning as uh, Andrew um, uh, brought that word and Jamie led us uh, so beautifully with Emma in, in worship. So I'm really excited for this morning. If you haven't been with us for the last uh, three weeks or so, I just thought it would be a helpful moment just to have a little bit of a pit stop and catch us up on the sort of story so far. Okay? So um, we're in the the book of 1 John. Um, and John is the same writer who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, unsurprisingly, Um, and he at this time is pastoring a a group of churches in the ancient city of Ephesus, right? Just uh, to help us draw some parallels, Ephesus back then isn't too dissimilar to London right now. It was a capital of trade and commerce and politics and, and intellect. So I think it's helpful to know that so we can sort of draw some of those parallels out. And at this moment in time, uh, the churches that are under his leadership are going through a bit of a crisis, okay? In particular, people are starting to break off and are beginning to deny Jesus was the Messiah. Bear in mind, this is about 50 years, uh, if that, after uh, Jesus walked on the earth. So we're not talking a, a long time. And more than that, these people were even active in stirring up those around them um, to cause hostility amongst those who were uh, trying hard to stay faithful to what they believed. And I think we can probably imagine this was a a moment in time when the believers of the the churches didn't fully know what to believe. They were being really challenged. And so John, their caring, father-like pastor, wanted to reassure his churches at this time of uncertainty, that Jesus is who he says he was and that God is with them as they continue to faithfully follow the truth. And you don't need to be a big thinker, right, to realize why this might be applicable today. I don't know about you, but it just feels that over the last two, three years especially, it feels as though people are asking bigger questions. They're seeking answers in different places. I've been hearing a lot recently about the growth of mindfulness. I've been hearing about things like healing circles and gong baths, right? I even went to a wedding the other day, and it was like this heady mix of Buddhist prayer, humanist reflection, Christian vows, Jewish tradition. It was all sort of thrown together like it was was normal. And I hope you'll agree that in this context, we as the church could really benefit, I think, from being reassured Who Jesus is, who he says he was, and that God is with us as we continue to faithfully follow the truth. In terms of the approach John takes uh, in 1 John, what I really like about it's really refreshing and I think helps us really get hold of it, is that he makes a real point not to create this new big cell for these believers, but to simply echo the words of Jesus. And I think it's a bit of a timeless reminder, isn't it, that if we want to pursue the truth, we've got to hit keep hearing the truth. And so if you're not a believer today, uh, I'm really excited for you. I think hopefully we can give you a little bit of a fast track into the teaching of Jesus, courtesy of John. Um, and if you are a Christian and maybe have been for a time, I want to really encourage you not to just let these words um, flow over you, but actually for them to stir you and to remind you of what are those things that you really put your faith in. Okay, we ready? Good. So... We have journeyed thus far through the first chapter and a half of 1 John. uh, And we find ourselves at a really interesting junction in the book. Up to this point, John's primary goal has been to point believers towards the light and the love of Jesus. And, And you'll remember if you've been with us that that's what Jason and Philip have so beautifully taken us through in the last three weeks. And he now changes gear to a slight degree. And starts to point believers away from what he calls the world and what he describes the darkness of the world. So let's um, get our first verse up. Uh, and that's today's verse, which is 1 John chapter 2, 15-17. through 17. And it says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So at the heart of our verse today, concerned about the well-being of his family, John says a clear command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Instead, he says, do the will of God so at this central junction in the middle of our book, he presents a profound choice. Will you choose the word or will you choose God's will? In 2009, um, my wife Katie and I were presented with what at the time was a really big choice, right? So we lived in York and having met there at university, decided we would start our married life together. And it was a dream scenario, right? church was going well I was about to marry this beautiful girl which if you'd seen my holes in my shoes a couple of years before you'd realize itself was a bit of a miracle Um, and we were all set and ready to build this brilliant life together in arguably one of England's most beautiful cities it was a really strong start and so it was a a Wednesday morning and the Saturday before we just got married We'd taken our honeymoon in the Lake District and we were staying in this beautiful boutique little hotel. And in that morning, I remember this vividly, I received a curious voicemail from my boss at the time, right in the middle of our honeymoon. And it was strange for him, right? He, he was quite an empathetic guy. Uh, I don't think he would have intentionally been calling. And so there I was, perched on this little windowsill, overlooking this road down to uh, Bowness on Windermere, so I'm sure some of you know it. And I played this message and it went a bit like this. Mike, he said, apologies for calling you on your honeymoon. Needless to say, my heart started uh, racing at this point. Um, I have some news, he said. So there was, my, my, my heart started racing a bit faster. My, my mind's going in 101 directions as to what it could be. And then he came with the hammer blow. The company's decided to relocate. They're moving four hours away to Slough. We're moving, and you're either with us or you're not. And so there we were on day four of married life, presented with a pretty big choice. Where were we going to start our life together? Would it be in the south, where they were going, or would it be in the north? Just as a sidebar, do we have anyone from the north in this church? Do we have anyone from the north? That's such a shame. Um, the north is so beautiful. If you've never been to the north of England, can I just a little plug for the north of England it is so wonderful and but so we spent time with our pastors and we spent time in prayer and we were seeking God's will and all through it we were really conscious that we wanted to seek first the kingdom right and we had all these big questions as to how leaving our church was seeking first the kingdom Many of you know uh, how our story sort of unraveled, and we actually ended up doing both. We moved, but we also took church with us, and we went and did a bit of church planning. And looking back on it, I can now see God's fingerprints all over that season. But I do sometimes wonder, what would have life been like if we'd made a different choice? What would our jobs have been? What would we have been doing, or where would we have gone with our church? Would we have had our daughter, Matilda? Who would have our closest friends be? What memories would we have made? You see, choices change everything. And in this verse, John is saying exactly that. He's saying, church, which will you choose? The word, the world, or God's will? Because it changes everything. And it's this choice that I want us to explore together this morning. So let's begin with the first half of the choice. What does it mean to choose the world? Well, let's look at our verse again. He writes, for all that is in the world, and he lists three things. He says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Feels pretty stark, right? But for us believers today, he's presenting us with a clear warning. But these three things, they feel really specific. That was certainly my reflection when I first read that. What about gluttony or stealing or lying? Like The usual stuff that you would associate with what John is presenting as sins. Why has John chosen these three things in particular? Well, to find our answer, I actually want to take us to the Gospel of Luke. So remember that um, John was very close to Jesus. And given the profundity of where we're going to go in Luke and the story I'm going to share, I think, it's, I think we can be confident that John probably would have heard about this exchange. Okay, So it's Luke 4, uh, verses 1 through 13. And it's when Jesus is starting his ministry. And before doing so, he goes out into the wilderness and finds himself famously going toe to toe with the devil. So let me read this to you and see if you can see the three characteristics of the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride that John writes about for yourself. Okay, here we go. Luke 4 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I love a a good biblical understatement, right? You haven't eaten for 40 days and you're just hungry. He wasn't way more than hungry. Imagine that, hey? The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread and Jesus answered him it is written he threw the bible at him i think mean, it's a good a good reminder that we've we've got to we've got to know and read our bible if we want to be on point right man shall not live by bread alone and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him to you i will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and i give it to whom i will "'If you then will worship me, it will be all yours.' And Jesus answered him, "'It is written, as before, "'you shall worship uh, the Lord your God, "'and him shall you serve.'" And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, the devil using the same scheme against him, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Because Jesus was God, he could say this. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So do you see those three characteristics coming through? The three characteristics of the world that John writes about, they characterize the three temptations the devil plays with when he tempts Jesus. Let's have another look. First temptation. Verse 3 says, The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. First of all, the devil, he appeals to the desires of the flesh. In this case, it was hunger. Bearing in mind, Jesus was really hungry. But differently, he appeals to our basic needs. Hunger, thirst, sex, want for a home, sleep. That's so gratifying, isn't it, to give in to our basic desires. How often do we lose, I know I do, the righteous battle against the alarm clock on a morning just for one more hour on the comfort of that pillow? What about food? I think we've proven in the West, haven't we, how easy and appealing it is to eat and eat in all its fullness, right? So what John is saying is that by choosing the world firstly means giving in to the basic desires of the flesh. Second temptation The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The second temptation, he's targeting the desires of the eyes. In this case, it was lust for wealth and possession, right? The eyes are the window of the soul. I'm sure you've heard that expression before. How we see the world determines how we act in the world. We all need money, right? But if you esteem money, if you look upon money as not just a good thing but the thing, it'll change your motives, it'll change your behaviors, it'll change your plans and goals. And the devil, he wants us to see the world for what we can take from it rather than what we can give to it or enjoy of it. So choosing the world secondly means giving in to the desires of our eyes, turning good things that we see into the thing. And finally, the third temptation. He took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The third temptation was playing to his importance. He was playing ultimately to his pride. Saint Augustine, one of the most influential Christians of the early church, described pride as the mother of all sins. So is it surprising the devil saves his best weapon for last? You see, if the devil can't affect our basic needs and he can't affect how we see things out there, he's going to try and target us in here. It's here the devil tries to dethrone the true trinity with a new trinity of me, myself, and I. Because he knows if he can do that, he's going to get the rest of us anyway. So why has John listed these three characteristics? This is the devil's A-game. And these are his best weapons. And I think we can be confident, church, that if he's going to use them on, the, on, on Jesus, he's going to try use them on us. And John is warning us that if we choose the world, they're what we get. But this is all good and well, right? This is ancient Ephesus. This is a long time ago. It was a bit confused. It was getting all a bit messy. But is this stuff really that relevant for 21st century British church? Well, if you do any reading about the health of the church, I think you may already know the answer to that question. It's worth saying, I think, that there's overlap between the three, the three characteristics that John writes about for our context. But I just want to try and explore their relevancy for us today. So there's a, a few recent statistics um, for you that I just want to present. and It's not a complete picture, but I think it will really help us consider whether we have a need to heed John's advice. So let's take the desire for food again. Did you know 30% of Christians are obese compared, just to give you a point of reference, uh, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus at 1%? I, let me say that um, I understand obesity is, can be a really complex issue. It can be a really complex issue. But I think, uh, you know, and it can be connected to, to, to different medical conditions and challenges for sure. But I think we've also got to be honest, right? That in the West, we've turned food into a major indulgence. And I think we've got to be careful about that. What about the desires of the eyes? Let's take lust. Did you know 42% of Christian men say they have a pornography addiction? That means almost half of all Christian men are watching porn regularly. That means there'll be guys here struggling right now with this. And let me say, I want to say you're not alone, right? Being really candid is something I've struggled with. But it can also be really destructive. In my experience, it can warp the mind. And so today, if that's you, I'd personally love to put my hand up and love to come and talk to you about it. And I'd love to talk it out together. Because I think that's a really big challenge, especially for men in the church today. What about money? Big M word, right? Makes the world go round. The world says spend and the Bible says to give. So how are we doing as a church? Well, statistics suggest that we're not that great at giving either. It predicts that only 10% of Christians tithe 10% of their income. And if every Christian, this is mind-blowing, gave their full tithe, an extra £125 billion would be released for the kingdom. So let me ask, how are you doing with tithing today? Not an easy one, not an easy one. My intention here isn't to depress us, but I think we've got to get real, right? This is looking awfully like exactly what John was warning us to avoid. And what about pride, the mother of all sins? Well, I'd love to read from you um, an extract from... Uh, the recent edition of Premier Christianity magazine. If, if you've never picked this up or don't read it, can I encourage you just to have a little look on their website? I think it's like twenty quid for the whole year, and you get a copy each month. Um, and there's some really good content in here. It's good, vary your diet a little bit about what you read about what's going on in the church. And the article, I, I just want to read a short excerpt from. Um, this is a guy called Francis Chan, who many of you will know, um, and he he ditched his mega church of six thousand people for a far more basic expression of church and I think if I read this to you uh, it will give you a sense of why and I think this pride challenge was what he was sort of leaning into it says this in his new book letters to the church Chan is bold brash and brilliant He explains how he often asks church leaders what their congregants expect on a Sunday. Typical replies include a really good service, strong age-specific ministries, a certain style, volume, length of singing, a well-communicated sermon, parking, coffee. He then asks the same leaders to list biblical commands about the church. This time the responses are, "'Love one another as I have loved you. "'Look after widows and orphans in their distress.'" Make disciples of all nations. What would upset your people more, Chan asks, if you didn't provide the things from the first list or you didn't obey the biblical commands on the second list? I think the biggest challenge to the 21st century church today is comfort. The truth is if we simply try to please man with a comfortable message and a comfortable event, we will end up pleasing no one, especially not God. If the church focuses purely on what people can take from it, we offer the world nothing at all. And frankly, we rob them of what God offers. And that is way better anyway. So we must be careful not to sidestep pride in our church because it's real and it's potent. If you want to read the rest of this, come take it after the service. So if that's what God John is calling us from, the world characterized by the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and pride what is he calling us to? And We find the answer to this in the second half of our verse in uh, verse 17 when John writes um, whoever does the will of God abides forever I mentioned it earlier the alternative is to choose God's will so what does it mean to choose God's will? Uh, Let's catch up on some of the clues we've picked up over the last couple of weeks. Firstly, two weeks ago, Philip reminded us that doing God's will means to walk in the light. In case you missed it, let me give you a quick recap. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You may remember Philip painted a picture of uh, his wedding marquee. Uh, It was an analogy I really, really, really liked. I thought I could really connect with that. Um, And it was set, this marquee was set in the middle of a field and outside was pitch black. But inside it was filled with light. And he reminded us that God is inviting us into that tent. He's inviting us into the light. But it's not just a passive act of stepping in. Walking in the light, Philip said, meant two things. He said, firstly, it means spending time with Jesus. Not just any time, but our best time. And secondly, it means to live in increasing obedience to Jesus. Not just in parts of our lives, but with our whole lives. Time, money, bodies, minds, work, and so on. So choosing God's will firstly means to walk in the light. Then last week, Philip shared that to choose God's will is to walk in love, specifically love for one another. In case you missed it, let me recap again. In chapter 2, verse 10, John writes, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. What exactly does it mean to love your brother? Well, Philip reminded us that in chapter 3, verse 16, it goes on to say it's not just about putting an arm around one another. It's about laying down our lives for one another. Loving one another means sacrificing your own comfort and well-being for those around you. And you may remember the, the word we used for that was agape love." So to uh, keep on with the analogy, Philip shared that to walk in love is not simply to walk into the tent, but is to join our brothers and sisters in fellowship. Encouraging them and edifying them and becoming so consumed by the light that we make it sacrifices for them and serve them. And indeed that was his experience on his wedding day, when people from the church gave up their time and energy to serve him and celebrate in style. So choosing God's will means secondly to walk in love. But I'd love to add a third meaning of what it means to choose God's will. And we find our clues throughout John's writing. Let me share a few verses uh, with you as to what this third meaning might be. In 1 John 2.25, John writes, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. In 1 John 3.14, John writes, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. In 1 John 5.11-12, he writes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in this son. Whoever has the sun has life. Whoever does not have the sun does not have life. Church, to choose God's will. Thirdly, is to walk in life. You see, when we walk into the tent, it's difficult to simply stay at our table, simply spending time with one another. Or at least that's my experience anyway. If you, anyone knows me, my philosophy at the wedding is to get straight onto that dance floor, early doors. You see, in the tent of light and love, we're meant to take to the dance floor, right? Or to put it differently, we're meant to walk in the fullness of life. In fact, the theme of life is so important to John that the word life appears 62 times in the short book. In fact, more than that, it's so important to him that the main theme of his whole gospel, every 21 chapters of his gospel, the very purpose for which he writes was life. But yet, yet again, John, just as John isn't referring to a mediocre definition of what he means by walking in light and love, he's calling us to anything but a media- mediocre definition of walking in life. This time uh, last year, almost, I had the privilege of preaching on the Gospel of John, and I explored this theme at the heart of his Gospel, and the sort of life that Jesus is offering us as believers. And I listed five characteristics, and I'll just play those back to you. A loved life, a nourished life, a life free from darkness, and a fruitful life, and an eternal life. I'm sure most of us would agree here that if our life was characterized by love and nourishment and freedom from darkness and fruitfulness, like Patrick was talking about earlier, and was a t- and totally eternal, we'd be living a pretty full life, right? a life totally worth living. And indeed, this is what John wants to remind us again in 1 John. That by choosing God's will, we are choosing to experience the joy of life with Christ, both now and into eternity. And he doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. So let me summarize. To choose God's will is to firstly choose walking in the light, giving our best self in obedience to him. Secondly, in love, living self-sacrificially with that agape love for one another. And thirdly, in life. Enjoying the fullness of life now and into eternity. So there it is, John's challenge. Will it be the word or will it be God's will? And whether we realize it or not, this is the choice each of us has to make. Have a think, what sort of choices are you making today? You see, if we choose the world, will we soon be living one kind of life? But if we choose God's will, we'll soon be living an altogether different kind of life. So the Christian faith is pretty simple then, right? It's a pretty simple choice. (laughs) But if it's so simple, why is it so hard to choose? And it's this tension um, that C.S. Lewis writes so brilliantly and so insightfully about in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm sure many of us here have read that. And it's in one essay in particular I want to focus in on. And it's an essay uh, aptly entitled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? Um, And I've got this on the screen behind us so you can read along with me. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to just cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out hand over the natural self, all the desires that you think innocent, as well as all the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. This is both harder and easier than what what we are all trying to do. You have noticed, I expect that Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard Sometimes is very easy, he says, "Take up your cross, in other words, it's like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp." Next minute, he says, "My yoke is easier, my burden is light." He means both, and we can just see why both are true. I love Jamie and Emeka to come and join us and lead us as we as we draw this to a close. You see that What C.S. Lewis is saying is that it's hard, almost impossible, to live the life Jesus is calling us to. To walk fully in light and love and life. Why? Because to choose God's will, he says no half measures are any good. Because he asks us to hand over the whole outfit. In God's economy, if we don't give our all, we may as well give nothing at all. Take the story of the rich young ruler who had given God everything, diligently obeying the law, except one thing, his wealth. When he asked Jesus exactly how to inherit the fullness of what he had for him, he was reminded plainly and simply to give everything. So if it's so hard, almost impossible, what is the answer? Well, here's where I come full circle. Cast your mind's eye back to the scene in Luke Jesus overcame the devil. In fact, he sent the devil running with his tail between his legs. But when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he wasn't just overcoming the devil for his own sake. He was overcoming the devil for your sake. You see, at the cross, Jesus was exchanging his life for ours. But he wasn't just exchanging any life. He lived a perfect life that had fully overcome the devil And his most deadly weapons. And now we get to receive that life too. Jesus didn't just die for us. He lived for us as well. You see before we choose God's will. God has already made a way. Or to put it differently. Jesus is already light. That we might be light. He already loved that we might love. And he already lived that we might live. And live life in all its fullness. C.S. Lewis said in that quote, hand over the natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. When we choose God's will, we put off our old self and we put on the new self. We put on the perfect life that Jesus lived. And it's for the, these reasons that the Christian walk is possible. That his yoke might be easy and his burden might be light because he's already made a way. I'd love to just close with a short story that is just my own experience of this becoming real for me uh, recently. About six months ago, I started um, the Leadership Academy through our, our group of churches um, which is amazing, and I'd really encourage any believer who's thinking about taking their leadership to the next level to really give it some, some good thought. But the area of my life I think it's really helped transform most is my quiet time. I now get up most mornings um, before my daughter wakes up, which is about 5.30. <laughs> Being really honest with you, it's really, really difficult to give that time up. <laughs> I too lose the righteous struggle against the alarm clock on a morning. And it's by no means become a daily occurrence yet, but my experience is this. As hard as it can be, it's not burdensome. In fact, I feel that easiness and that lightness about it when I'm in it. These days I, I even miss it. I feel it when I don't spend time with God on a morning You see, Jesus describes Christianity like a narrow gate. It's hard to enter. And not many people do. And it's hard to stay the path. Because there's no half measures. But when we enter, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There's life in all its fullness, waiting for us on just the other side. Because of what he's already done, church, We get to walk in light, we get to walk in love, and we get to walk in life. And that's the life worth living.